chapter 11, starting at verse 27 through to ver- uh, chapter 12, verse 17. And if you have the church Bibles, that is found on page one, uh, 899. Eight, page 899. So the, in this Bible, this passage initially is, is entitled The Authority of Jesus Challenged. They came, they, they came again to Jerusalem and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin... They were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought that John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The parable of the vineyard owner. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug out a pit for a wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenant farmers and went away. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers to collect some of the fruit of the vineyard from them. But they took him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent another servant to them, and they hit him on the head and treated him shamefully. Then he, he sent another, and they killed that one, He also sent many others, some they beat and others they killed. He still had one to send, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenant farmers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they seized him, killed him and threw him out to the vineyard out of the vineyard. What then will the owners of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the farmers and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is wonderful in our eyes. They were looking for a way to arrest him but feared the crowd because they knew he had spoken this parable against them. So they left him and went away. God and Caesar. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, 
Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Thanks, Jeff. Good morning, Church at Nine. My name's Greg. I'm one of the ministers here at OEC. I look after Church at Four. Um, so keep your Bibles open to that passage as we look through that together. Uh, and also in your handouts, there's an outline of the talk so you can follow where we're going uh, and you can take notes if you find that a helpful thing to do. Uh, now, I want to start with a bit of a movie quiz. Not an easy one, this one. I'm going to give you a quote. I want you to tell me what it was originally from. This town ain't big enough for the two of us. Does anyone know what movie that originally came from? And it's not Toy Story, by the way. No one. High Noon. It might have been in High Noon. The first one it was in was The Western Code back in 1932. So we're talking a long time ago now. Um, so there's a new law. Let me, let me just paint the scene. There's a new lawmaker uh, and a local standover merchant and they go toe-to-toe on the dusty streets of Carabinus. The full quote goes like this. Let me just give it to you. I'll go from one side to the other so you can see who's speaking. I'm getting tired of your meddling. This town ain't big enough for the two of us. I'm going to give you 24 hours to get out. If I see you in Carabinus... By this time tomorrow, it's you or me. I'll see you this time tomorrow. You came here looking for trouble, didn't you? Well, I'm here and I'm looking at you, if that's what you mean. You know, it's not bad dialogue for a Western, I don't think. Who here actually likes Westerns? Not me. Anyway, I'm, I'm glad you guys do. I think Blazing Saddles is as good as it gets, but anyway. But so many movies have sort of climax scenes like that, don't they? An unstoppable force meets an immovable object and the sparks fly and the showdown is just inevitable. And so you've got Obi-Wan Kenobi and Anakin Skywalker. You've got Iron Man and Captain America. You've got Iron Man and Thanos. You've got Iron Man and just about anyone. You've got Elsa and Prince Hans. You know the showdown's coming, don't you? When the two of them will come face to face and someone will lose. In Mark chapter 1, we're introduced to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. In the very first verse of the Gospel, in verse 2, Mark quotes from the Old Testament to set the scene for Jesus' coming. And he says, See? I'm sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his paths straight. God is coming to his people. That's what this quote is about. In fact, if you look back at the quotes from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, God is coming to Jerusalem. God is coming to his temple. And when he comes, he brings hope and life, and salvation, and peace, and forgiveness, and judgment. Last week, that day finally came, didn't it? Jesus, God's son, came to Jerusalem, to the temple, and there was anger. 
the righteous anger at what the son saw in his father's house. The tables were thrown, people chased out. The fury of the father at what was happening in his temple came from the lips of Jesus. My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. There's Jesus, the unstoppable force, as he comes to the temple. But throughout Mark, we've seen the growing opposition to Jesus, haven't we? By the religious leaders. In fact, as far back as Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees and the Herodians began to plot about how they might kill him. The religious leaders, the immovable object. So in verse 27, we arrive again in Jerusalem in the passage we're looking at with Jesus and the disciples. And on this day, the great showdown between Jesus and the Jewish authorities happens. The two enemies finally come face to face on the main street and the wind blows and they stare at each other in the eye. Jesus and the rulers of Israel. Jesus has arrived in town to bring a new order, a new authority And the old guard will not give their ground. It is very clear that these two authorities cannot exist side by side. Jesus and the authorities, toe to toe, the town ain't big enough for the two of them. And someone's got to go. And so Jesus and his disciples, they arrive on the streets and there's this welcome party. The chief priests, the rulers of the temple, the teachers of the law, the thought police, let's call them that, the thought police. And the elders, the rulers of the people, they they come together, gather together to confront Jesus. I'm sure at this point the disciples are just sort of edging back into the crowd a little bit, just wondering what's going to happen. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Authority. It's a question that takes us back to the beginning of Mark's gospel, Mark chapters 1 to 3, where we saw Jesus teach with authority. His words have the authority to stop the wind and stop the storm. He simply calls people to follow him and his words have authority and they follow. He has authority over sickness and disease and death. He has authority to forgive sins. These leaders of Israel have seen the authority of Jesus. They're confronted by it. They reject it. They hate it. They refuse to accept Jesus' claim of authority back then in chapters 1 to 3 and now He has come to their city and had the gall to express his authority in their place, in the temple. They not only refuse to accept his authority, they want to be rid of him. But faced with this confrontation, Jesus is calm. He will not give them a direct answer to their question and instead turns the tables on them. He asks them a question that they're not willing to answer. John's baptism. Was it from men or was it from God? Jesus says. And they won't answer. And you can see why in the passage. And so what Jesus is doing is exposing their unwillingness to accept the ministry of a prophet. A prophet recognised by the people. He's exposed their religious hypocrisy in front of everybody. And so the question of Jesus' authority goes unanswered at least for the moment. Because in 12 verses 1 to 12, Jesus actually does give an answer to that question, even if it's not directly an answer. But he also makes clear what his authority will mean for them. And he does so with a parable. He tells this parable 
It's really a parable of the story of Israel as a nation. The parable of a vineyard. A man plants a vineyard, spares no expense. There's a watchtower, a fence, even a, even a, a pit for the wine press. It's like a factory, this thing. After it's completed, he leases the vineyard to tenants whom he charged with the responsibility to care for this vineyard and to bring him a return on his investment. The tenant farmers are answerable to this owner. At harvest, a servant is sent to collect the fruit as payment for the rental of the vineyard, but the tenants beat him, send him away empty-handed, so the owner sends another. So the tenants step it up a notch, they beat him on the head, they treat him shamefully. Another is sent. This one they kill. The owner sends more servants. Some are beaten, some are killed. The vineyard owner is patient, isn't he? Giving the tenants chance after chance to show him respect. He offers them so many opportunities to get things right, but they just get entrenched in their evil in their rebellion. And so as a final desperate measure, he sends his only son, saying to himself, surely, surely they'll respect him. But instead, the tenants see it as an opportunity to take control of the vineyard for themselves. They recognise that this is the heir, kill him. And they chuck him over the wall like he's a piece of garbage on garbage day. The religious leaders would have heard this parable and it would have been familiar to them. I'm going to read to you, it'll come up on the screen, a parable, another story of a vineyard, a song of a vineyard from Isaiah 5. There's some differences, but look for the similarities, okay? I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it, and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I'm about to do in my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I'll give, also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice but saw injustice. He expected righteousness but heard cries of despair. Yes, there's differences in the way that this Song plays itself out, plays out. But can you hear the echoes? Can you hear the echoes of the sin that Jesus sees in Jerusalem when he comes? The song ends with the promise of impending judgment, and Jesus ends his parable with the same thing. Verse 9 What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, justice will be done. He will kill the tenants, throw them out. He will kill them as they have killed his servants and son, and he will give the vineyard to others. These tenants are done. Generation after generation, Israel's leaders, who had been given responsibility over the people of God, over the vineyard of God's kingdom, had rejected God's messengers, his prophets, silencing them, punishing them, killing them. 
in greed. They exploited the vineyard for their own gain. And now these leaders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders, are just like their forefathers. They rejected John. And now, faced with the king's son, with the coming of God's final messenger, who comes with all the authority of God himself, they'll kill him and throw him out of the vineyard too. Why? Why do they do this? Well, the parable tells us why, because they think they're going to control the vineyard. They want to control the benefits of the kingdom for themselves. When faced with the authority of God in the person of his son, they see a threat to their own authority. They see the authority of the son cannot exist with their own. Someone has to go, and for them it's the son. But then in the parable, the tables get turned. Jesus makes clear that their authority is going to be taken away. Judgment will fall on them. They are right. Someone has to go. And it's them. Then Jesus quotes Psalm 118. He lets them know um, that despite their successful attempts to destroy the sun, the sun will overcome them. He is the capstone of the kingdom. They have rejected him. The kingdom has come. And so the kingdom's going to be taken from them and given to others. Now, as this parable is spoken by Jesus, the leaders know exactly what Jesus is saying about them. And they reject his claim to authority and then they go out to fulfill the parable itself. To kill the son. As we as we look at this event unfold on the streets of Jerusalem, it's so easy to shake our heads at these foolish and wicked men. But as we do, we need to ask ourselves: Are we like them in any way? Jesus has come with all authority. He has died as God's King. He's been raised, and now has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has authority over you and me. What do we do when we're faced with that authority? Do we stand toe-to-toe against Jesus in our own little kingdom? You see, it's you and me on that dusty road. As Jesus stands before us in all authority and asks that we accept his authority over us. Will we stand against the king of heaven and earth, making our own claim to power and authority against him? demanding that we are the ones in control of our little kingdom, of our life, of our hopes and dreams, and how dare he claim to have authority over me and refuse his authority over us? Or will we take off our petty crown and lay it at his feet and say, Jesus, forgive me. Forgive me for the way I have railed against your authority. I accept you as my Lord. I'm yours. I want you to keep that thought because as we continue uh, to read through this passage, we see more of what it means to accept the authority of Jesus. Verse 12, the leaders are seething, determined to kill Jesus, but they can't do it because they're afraid of the crowd who will, I think, will side against them and for Jesus. And so they try to turn the tables. They send the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap Jesus to try and turn the crowd against him. The Pharisees and the Herodians, two groups of people with very different views of politics, of religion and of life, but united in their desire to have Jesus dead. 
And so they come up with a plan to trick him into a situation where they will be freed to have him killed. After reminding Jesus in the crowd, Jesus, you speak truthfully. And they ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? It's a clever question, really, isn't it, when you think about it? Because if Jesus says, oh, yeah, you should pay the tax, the crowd will turn against him and then the leaders will be free to do what they want. They can arrest him on whatever charge they like and just lynch him. But if Jesus says that they shouldn't pay the tax, well, then they can arrest him for inciting rebellion. Either way, they get what they want. It's very clever. But Jesus is too wise to be trapped and, in, in faith, uh, and he cuts right to the heart of the evil of the leaders of God's people. He accuses them in front of everyone, you're trying to trap me. He just exposes it. And then he asks to see a coin and asks whose inscription, whose image is on the coin that you bring to me? And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar, Caesar's and give to God what is God's. If the coin has Caesar's image on it, then it actually belongs to him. And he has every right to ask for it. But then he also turns the accusation around on them and he asks them, have you given to God what is God's? So what is God's? What, what is he saying we need to give to him? Well, in answer to that question, we need to ask another question. That is, where do you see the image of God? We see it here, don't we? We see it in ourselves. We are made in God's image. Right back in Genesis 1 and 2. Giving to God what is God's mean we, means we give our whole self. He owns it all. And this is actually the heart of the problem for the leaders of Israel. They do not give to God what is his. The way they treated Jesus has clearly shown that this is true. They sought to trap him. They're plotting to murder him. They're desperately trying to protect their own power, their own influence, their own importance. And that has blinded them to the reality of who Jesus is and blinded them to the way that they love power and influence more than they love God himself. These leaders of Israel thought they could make a show of religion on the outside, make sacrifices, giving to God what they thought he would want and then they can live the rest of their life the way that they want to. Full of indifference and hatred and rejection of God's son. The leaders of God's people, when confronted with the authority of Jesus, they want him dead. It's shocking, isn't it, to see people so protective of their power that they'll do anything to keep it. It's shocking when we see it, but it happens time and time again, doesn't it? We see it all the time. People get so used to power, they'll stop at nothing to protect it. Take Putin, who has changed the constitution in Russia numerous times to continue his reign and has killed those who stand against him. Every political party is full of stories of backstabbers and, and influence climbers willing to sacrifice the careers of everybody around them for their own political influence. But let me ask you this, what do you make of the authority of Jesus? Let's come back to that again. Will you bow the knee? Will you see that you owe God your life? You owe him everything. And this helps us to see what it means for us to take off our crown and lay it at the feet of Jesus. Jesus has authority over me, over you, in all of time, in all of life, in every area of life. Not just when I come to church, not just when I'm with other Christians, not just when I go to growth group, no, all the time. And in Australia, we're not good with authority, are we? 
we don't trust it, we almost celebrate rebellion. And we can blame our convict history, we can blame our lacklustre authorities, whether they be political or our bosses or our parents or whatever it might be, but the but at the heart of the problem's here. It's in our heart. We think authorities are fine so long as they're answerable to me. Can you see the problem? And the thing is, that doesn't work with Jesus, does it? Now, if you're here today and you don't as yet know Jesus and love and trust him, it's so good that you're here. As we open the Bible and we come face to face with the one who claims to be our great God, our compassionate, loving, forgiving God, who claims to have power and authority over life, over my life, over yours. Let me ask you this difficult question, if that's you. Are you toe-to-toe with Jesus? Have you seriously considered his claim to be the one who has authority over your life? Because he does. Have you seen his power? Have you heard his words on sin and judgment and forgiveness? Have you listened to him? What will you do with the work, with the words, with the authority of Jesus? Will you ignore them or will you welcome them and bow the knee? Let me encourage you to do that. As the leaders of Israel came face to face with Jesus in the town of Jerusalem, one of them had to go. The authorities are going to lay plans to destroy the son. But Jesus warned them that they'll be thrown out of the kingdom and the kingdom given to others. We too are face to face with the authority of the risen Lord Jesus. And while we might like to think that we are the ones who alone deserve to control our life and make our own decisions, our own goals, our hopes and dreams, that we are the king of our own life, there's another greater king who asks, who demands authority. Someone's got to go. Let me urge you to accept the authority, the forgiveness, the love of this great king. For those of us who do love Jesus, who have laid down the crown at his feet, accepted him as our great saviour and lord, we need to continue to lay down our crown at his feet. So let me ask you this. What, in what areas of life have we tried to keep control? Keep that part of our life away from his authority? We are made in his image. We belong to him. We've been created by him and saved by him. We belong to him twice, really. Have we given all of ourselves to God? Do we give God what is his? So in driving the car, do I drive in a way that reflects that he's in authority over all parts of my life and not just when there's a cop behind me? When relaxing with friends, he's still Lord then too. When disciplining our kids, yes, he's authority over that too. Does the love of the son shape the way that we do that? When spending our money, Jesus owns it all, not just the bit we decide to give away. It's all his. He's entrusted us with it. He's authority over it all. And we need to live under his authority, consciously aware that we're accountable to him. This great, loving, powerful king. We need to think carefully about how Jesus' authority needs to shape all of our life. It means we deny ourselves, we take up our cross and follow him. And it means recognising that every part of our life comes under his authority. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, what a great saviour you are. What a great king you are. Forgive us for the times when we want to keep things back from you. We pray that you help us to lay down our crowns every day at your feet. Accept your authority at the one who not just made us, but died for us. And we'll come back. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.